Welcome. If you guys are new here, my name is Brian, one of the pastors, and I normally don't dress like this, but it's an Easter miracle. So, hi. Um, welcome. Hey, first of all, before we jump in, what I want to do is I just want to say, again, thank you for taking the time to be able to be here today. This is our, our third service. We've been doing this um, so you guys basically get the, the best of the best, so, so you're welcome. Um, it's already been done two other times this morning, so... Um, our hope this morning is that we will focus on the story of the resurrection. That's what brings us here today. If you guys don't have Bibles, why don't you raise your hand? We have some ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at the story that is found from a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you guys want, you can open up there. Uh, if you don't know where that's at, don't have any problem looking at the table of contents. Uh, otherwise, the passage will be up on the screen. So what I wanted to do before we jump in, in terms of considering and thinking about the subject matter of the resurrection, is just, I was reminded of the reality that we live in a world that, for the most part, is very familiar with the story of death. We're, we're familiar with the story of death. Death infects and affects everything. It affects our lives. It affects relationships. It is the normal. It is kind of the, the status quo that everything that we ever engage in, we're always well aware of the fact that at some point there's an ending, that ending process we would just simply call death. And what disrupts that story is the story that we would describe as resurrection. It's an alternate story. It's a different narrative. And that's what Paul wants to bring to our attention as we consider this. So before we jump in to read the story, the teaching that Paul has about resurrection, I was thinking about this, that the reality is, on one hand, even though death is the norm, when we are disrupted by moments of new life, it causes us to stop, take notice, and be blown away by it. I'll give you a perfect example of this that happened this past year in California, and it happens every handful of years, and it's so breathtaking that literally the media, literally all around the nation, the media has taken notice of it, and every California-based Instagrammer and hipster has also taken notice of it because it's called the what? Super Bloom, right, right, you guys are all tracking right now. And, and the reality is, is if, if you're not familiar with that, the fact of the matter is, is that we live, obviously, in California in, in a desert. Um, but every once in a while, I mean, every year there are the quote-unquote wildflowers that typically happen, but beyond that, there are these rhythmic seasons where something unique happens, something beyond the norm happens, where even though the landscape, for the most part, is riddled by death and destruction and ruin and just... Uh, chaos, right? Every once in a while you have this disruption that we would call the super bloom that catches everybody's breath, everybody stops, everybody pauses, and doesn't want to just simply know about the fact of the data. They want to enter into it. So uh, I was doing some research on the internet. I came across some photos. I'll show you real quick. This is, uh, I, I believe, Death Valley, if I'm not mistaken. I hadn't been there, but this is what the internet told me. So I'm assuming it's true because most things on the internet are true. Um, but I, Death Valley, so this is obviously a landscape where it was just barren. But with the super bloom, what happened was it literally reshaped the entire landscape. Um, next slide, I thought this was also a cool one as well. Um, another landscape, this, this is beautiful. Um, in fact, if you uh, drive you know, out Highway 41, there's some areas like that that you'll kind of see very similar to this. But the point of the matter is, is that this is, this is what happens, and this is what causes us to stop, to take notice, and, are, and we're blown away by these types of things. I think these are great examples of, in nature, of resurrection, um, something beyond the scope or the pale of death uh, taking its place 
and reminding us that what is current in terms of death, destruction, and ruin is not necessarily the norm uh, that is always going to happen. That something greater, something beyond is possible, and that's what the story of resurrection is all about. So with that being said, what I want to do right now is I want to read the story that Paul lays out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll pick it up around verse 1, a little bit of backstory as to who this guy Paul was, because I think his story is very unique and interesting to just put into the backstory of all of this, is that Paul the Apostle, this guy was once known as Saul of Tarsus. He was someone that was raised in Judaism. He was trained as a religious leader within the synagogue. Uh, He was very familiar with the ancient Hebrew scriptures. And when Jesus came on the scene, and then when Jesus left the scene, uh, he had followers that were beginning to spread and create these little pockets, these little communities, we call them churches, all throughout the ancient uh, world. And Paul the Apostle was, was deeply frustrated by this whole movement. And he sought to stop this movement as much as he could. In fact, we're told in the story of the book of Acts that Paul the Apostle actually had um, warrants out to actually go arrest people. Or he was involved in uh, watching people die because they were part of this thing called the way. uh, Or Christianity as we would uh, later come to describe it. But what Paul had was his own sort of awakening. His own sort of resurrection of soul where Paul began to realize because God disrupts his life and takes him from off of this path of death and destruction and causing death and destruction to other people to experiencing the resurrected Jesus. And it radically not only appended his life, but changed his life to become now a great opponent of the Christian church, of began to go around and plant these churches. And one of the things that Paul does is he goes and he plants his churches and then he would, would send them letters to instruct them, to guide them, to teach them as to how to walk in a way that is consistent with this new story that we would call the gospel and begin to live that out. And this is what Paul is writing here in this particular passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's addressing, this is kind of the, 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 the most lengthiest portion in which Paul actually unpacks for us the understanding as to what the resurrection is all about and how it leads into a whole new way of being human. Listen to what Paul has to say about this. Pick it up at verse 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brethren, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. So the question, real briefly, is like, what is the gospel? Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel, but the question is, what is the gospel? Read on. We'll continue to see what he has to say. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received from Christ, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and then he raised the third day in accordance with the scripture. Verse 5, he says, and that he appeared to Cephas, to the twelve. He appeared to uh, more than 500 brothers at one time, whom of which are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they died. Then he appeared to James and to the rest of the apostles. And then lastly, of all, he appeared to one who is untimely born. He appeared to me. So what Paul is basically saying, he's saying that this, this Jesus, I'm going to tell you about this Jesus. So if you want to think of it this way, Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news, in the most minimalistic type of apple package form. He says, this is, this is what the gospel is. These three main elements are what the gospel repackaged that Paul wants us to think about it as. Number one, Christ died for our sins. Christ, according, according to the scriptures, he says, Christ rose again from, the, Christ was buried, I should say. In the tomb, and meaning it actually happened. He actually died. 
He was buried. But then the third day, he rose again, which is the third thing. So Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ had risen again. And that's the story that we find ourselves swept into. It's what Paul describes as the gospel or the good news. This is a fascinating word that Paul uses. Paul didn't invent the word gospel, by the way. This is a common word that was used first century ancient Roman Empire. It was a word that was also used to describe the effects or the workings of Caesar. I don't know if you knew this or not, but when Caesar would go in, you know, in the expansive kingdom of the, emp- or the empire of the Romans, uh, that when Caesar would go and conquer a new territory or one of his generals would take over a new area, oftentimes they would send forth these front runners to go into a village and they would shout the gospel Evangelion was the actual word that would be used there. They would shout this good news that Caesar's king. And so imagine being in a village that was once you know, owned and occupied by some sort of tribal you know, head, and now it's occupied by, by Rome. Rome has now taken over. Uh, that village has a new king, and they would go and shout and declare, there is a new king over this village, and it's Caesar. And so when Paul uses his language, I want to tell you about the gospel He's actually borrowing a word that would have had a lot of you know, common understanding. And he basically repurposes that word to say, I want to tell you about another king. A king that's actually greater, that's longer lasting, that has a more vaster reign than the empire of Rome and Caesar himself. That's the good news that Paul says. Uh, one other thing I think is important to note is that Paul was once religious. And Paul is now describing this whole movement not as a bunch of rules and regulations to be followed. That would be what many of us would describe as religion. Religion is about, for the most part, doing things to get God's favor, to make God like you, to get God to forgive you, to get God to welcome you. That's what religion does. What Paul is suggesting is something radically different. It's about entering into God's God's favor, not by anything that we've done. The difference between religion and what Paul is suggesting is that religion is about rules, regulations, doing things. It's about, at good advice, doing these steps and somehow you will get God to like you. Paul is offering something radically different. It's called good news. Good news, good advice are very distinct. Good news is about something that was done for you. Good advice is about something you need to do in order to get better, to advance, to progress. Now, Christianity does have advice. Don't don't mistake that. But the fact of the matter is it begins, first of all, with an announcement of good news. That there's a new king in town. And it's not Caesar. It's a king that's good. It's a king that loves us. It's a king that's making all things new by way of his power. And this is what Paul invites us to think about and to consider. That Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus was risen again from the dead. And Paul adds this little phrase, all in accordance to the scripture. This is an interesting phrase, but what Paul wants us to understand is that he's not innovating this. Paul's not making this up on the spot. This is not based upon some sort of ancient myth. What Paul is saying is all of this that we're talking to you about is actually part of this longer, bigger storyline of which we actually find ourselves. I want you to think about this. This is what the offer of Christianity is all about. It's about inviting you into something that has been long-standing, long-lasting, part of this long story of history. I mean, many of us, we find ourselves not at home in this world. We find ourselves not at home. We find ourselves lost. We find ourselves lacking meaning in life because many of us are trying to innovate as we go. And at some point, depending upon what storyline you hitch your life up to, at some point that storyline will fail you 
it will expire, and when it fails, when it expires, you will break along with it. The gospel is all about saying, affix your life to the story that has been going on from eternity all the way back to the creator, God. So what I want to do right now is I want to give you a quick like, little synopsis of that big, long historical storyline. I'm not going to do it for you. I'm actually going to have the people from the Bible Project show you a little video because they can do a far better job in five minutes than I could do. Otherwise, this sermon will last two hours. So you're welcome for this. So check out this video. But here's what I want you to think about. Think about the storyline, the various movements that are going to be suggested to you in this lengthy storyline that goes all the way up to the life of Jesus. So here you go. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. 
Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends and the snake crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus's power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. So if you want to think of it in four major movements, i got a little slide that you can kind of give you a little bit of a graphic to think about this. Number one, creation. Two, fall. Three, redemption. Fourth, renewal. This is sort of the cycle. This is a big storyline, a big overarching meta-narrative, if you want to think of it that way, that the entire Bible is all about, all leading to Jesus, and all ultimately culminating in this day that we celebrate that happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus conquered the grave. That's what this is all about. Now, that being said, Paul also recognizes the significance and the importance of what we would describe as the resurrection. So much so that Paul actually puts all of his cards on the table as if to say, look, if this event, if resurrection did not happen, then there's some pretty profound consequences that will come to play. In other words, if the resurrection is not true, then there's a host of other things that are true. And this is what Paul wants to unpack next as we begin to take a look at what he has to say about this. Listen to what he describes in the remainder of this is through a series of if-then type of statements. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then he goes on to describe. Number one, he says that we are actually all deceived. We are all deceived. If the resurrection didn't happen, that means that you know several billion people on planet Earth who believe this story are just believing nothing more than an ancient myth. And that's about it, meaning we are just, we are deceived. And it's important to just step back and consider the brevity of this claim. This is very profound, what Paul's suggesting. As he goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is actually in vain, our faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're actually still in your sins. The point that he's making is that if this event, called the resurrection, did actually not happen, not only are we deceived, 
But we, we still have to reckon with the fact that we got blood on our own hands. Death has still gripped our own hearts, and we really have no way out of it dealing with it. That the progressive dream that just simply says more education, more welfare, more help, more whatever, somehow at some point just comes to a complete end because that's exactly what the myth was that was believed mid-century of the 1900s. And then all of a sudden onto the scene of history comes Nazi Germany. You know that they were the most advanced nation on the entire planet. They had the highest, greatest technological advancements. They were the smartest. They, were, they literally led everything. And yet in the midst of that came the killing machine. And at some point, you just step back and think, how did this happen? The point is, is that this is the reality that we have to face, is that apart from this, we're still dead in our sins. We still have that we would have no hope beyond to deal with the effects of death in our hearts. This is what Paul puts on the table. Now, again, this is a really profound thing. Because if you want to dismantle Christianity and the claim of Christianity, Paul's basically saying, I'll give you the kill switch. And here's the button. It's in your hand. You can do this. If you can just somehow prove the fact that this event did not happen, then the entire thing becomes undone. That's an important thing. The second thing that Paul says, not only are we deceived, but we're also deceivers. Because if you go around and you promote something you know is untrue or a myth, then at, at, at worst... You know, you're just somebody that's doing ignorance. But at, at, at best, I mean, the highest degree, you're just a deceiver. You're lying to people. You're creating these myths and trying to promote a, a, a fable or a lie and profit off of it. And Paul says, that, that's a horrible thing. Verse 15, he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Now, for a Jewish person, is misrepresenting God a good thing, bad thing, negative, or neutral? It's massive. Paul's Jewish. Like, Paul lived within this worldview that says you do not misrepresent, you don't take the name of God in vain, you don't misrepresent God, you don't create idols, you don't create statues that represent, because that means death. Paul's saying, look, if we are somehow promoting this event that we claim happened, that didn't really happen, if, remember, then, Paul's saying, then we're just simply deceivers. That's a really bad thing. And then he goes on and says, whom he did not raise, and then if all this was not true, then we don't want to be deceivers. That's a big point. The third thing he points out is not only are we deceived, but we are not only are we deceivers, but he goes on to say that we're also like pathetic. We're to be pitied above men and all their people. That's what he says in verse 19. He says, if we have hope in this life only, meaning if there is no hope in what he describes as the resurrection, then we are of all most people to be pitied. Like he's basically just assuming that this is, if this is all that we have, then the best that we have to hope for in this life is what most people would look at. Is just, at best, you can either be an optimist or at worst, you can be a pessimist or somewhere in between. All right? Those are your two options. You can hope to be and handle this life as best as you can, put on a big smile on your face and ignore all the reality of stuff. Don't watch the news. Don't find out what's happening you know, in the White House. Don't be aware of what's taking place in this. Just somehow blind yourself to all of these other realities and just somehow have a positive attitude. Everything is going to get better. That's kind of a way of thinking about optimism. Or pessimism, if you kind of lean towards that, I, you know, I kind of lean towards that, like glass half empty, or, right? Or, and the point of the matter is, is that this idea that you know, every, not everything is going to get better. There are things that are just straight up bad in this world and not, don't have a whole lot of hope for that. So those are your two best options, really, optimism 
or pessimism or somewhere in between. But what I would suggest to you that there's another way in which Paul is basically inviting us in to consider, to look at this world, and to not only just look at this world, but to enter into an entirely new world and then begin to look at this world from that new world. This is what Paul begins to describe. And I'm going to lead to the last one, and then I'll read a quote, and I'll finish with one other final scripture. But if in reality the resurrection did happen, if in reality it is true, then what that means is that there's a whole host of other Gospels that are not true. So in other words, if this is the good news, if this truly is the good news that God has come to give and offer and invite us into, then that means that there's a whole host of other Gospels that though they claim much, though they offer the world, they cannot, will not deliver. And this is what Paul is inviting us to consider and think about. Listen to what he has to say later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Take a look at verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Then he begins to use uh, agricultural language. He says, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, and so by a man came resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at the coming of those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end uh, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, every power. He says, for he must reign until he has put under his feet his enemies. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's kind of a lengthy passage, and it might have lost you, but I just want to summarize it. What Paul is basically saying, that the, the, through in the Bible, in the storyline of the Bible, we saw that death, destruction, was unleashed upon this planet through one man. Remember, that was at the very beginning of the video. Adam. Adam and Eve kind of are these representative human, human beings on this planet that welcomed an alternate way, an alternate path forward that promised much, but only delivered death. And that unleashed death upon all humanity. So all of us as human beings, we suffer under the present reign of that form of death. And what Paul is then going on to say, but through one man came death, like Adam, through another man came life through Jesus. Jesus becomes the new representative head of a whole new host, a whole new family, a whole new community that trust him. And just as all died in Adam, meaning we all suffered under the death that Adam brought upon all of humanity, and we've all partakers of that, what he's saying is that all who enter into this new story through Jesus also enter into this new life. What that means is simply this. As Paul describes, he says, Jesus is the first fruits. Now again, uh, maybe some of you are farmers or agricultural people or urban gardeners, whatever. The point of the matter is, is that from what I understand, I'm not a, any of those, uh, but the way I understand this is that first fruits basically means this is the very first bit that has come in, that what has been seen through this first fruit can be expected from the rest. And what he's suggesting is that Jesus is the first fruits of a whole new harvest that will one day come. So the big idea that Paul is conveying is that the future, because of Jesus, is one that's full of hope, one that's full of life, one that basically presents a challenge to death and all of its friends, and that basically looks death in the eyes and says, do to me whatever it is that you want to do. Death crushes Jesus. Jesus comes out the other end of death, like Death Valley. On the other end, there's a super bloom. Jesus arises out of the grave and to a whole new world. 
and invites people to trust him and entrusting him enter into that world of life. That's what Paul describes as the gospel, the good news. So I want you to think about this in closing, is that death and all of its friends have been abolished. This is what the resurrection tells us. Again, just pause and step back and think about this. Our lives are defined by death, whether it be fear of death, whether it be traces of death, whether it be hangovers of death, whether it be evidences of death, all over our lives, we have death that has affected every part of our life. And I don't just necessarily mean physical death. I'm also looking at the reality of marriages that were once thriving and once alive, now languishing or dying, or relationships that were once thriving or flourishing, now languishing on the verge of death, or experiences that you had that were once full of life, but now have been brought into this, like, arena of death. And what Paul is suggesting is that death and all of its friends has affected every part of our lives. And Jesus invites us into an entirely new way of envisioning the future. What I would describe is not optimism, not pessimism, but hope. I want to read a quote by a guy named Cornell West. Maybe some of you have heard of him. I don't necessarily agree with everything what he teaches, but this is a fantastic quote, and I want you to see him because his hair is amazing. All right. So here's what he says. Hope and optimism are different. This guy's uber smart, by the way. Hope and optimism are different. Optimism tends to be based on the notion that there's enough evidence out there to believe things are going to get better, much more rational, deeply secular. Whereas hope looks at the evidence and says it doesn't look good at all, but I'll go beyond the evidence to imagine new possibilities. So to pause and think about this, if you're a follower of Jesus, we can rule out and assume that pessimism does not have a place there. Well, I think what he's also suggesting is that optimism doesn't have a place in the life of a follower of Jesus. Because optimism is basically the secular version. It's the more dumbed down, it's the more shallow version of what the Bible actually offers us, which is hope. Hope basically looks at the landscape and says, my life looks like a desert. Nothing but death all around. Death Valley is what it looks like. But in the midst of that, you're waiting upon the reality of a superbloom. Why? Because a superbloom happened 2,000 years ago, and a superbloom will happen again. This is what the gospel is all about. It invites us to look at life in an entirely different way. And if this is the case, if Jesus conquered death, if he came out the other end through a brutal, violent, criminal-oriented type of a death, but came out the other end alive and invites us into that what are the possibilities that are available to you and I right now where our lives have been impacted and affected by death? What are those areas where death has reigned, where it can be completely cut off and or reversed, where there is nothing but destruction and damage and chaos and ruin, where in its place something profoundly life-giving can take its place? This is what the gospel is. It's good news. Because it gives us this hope, not based upon just mere wishful thinking, not based upon positivity, but based upon an event that happened 2,000 years ago. Christ is the first fruits of a future that looks absolutely bright. But please understand, it's through Christ alone that we discover this. And this is what he invites us to trust him in as a result. Listen to how Paul put this, and I'm done. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? 
For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power, but thanks to God, He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the whole invitation that we're invited to consider, to tether our lives up in, to invite ourselves, to welcome ourselves into this invitation that God gives to us, to let our lives be radically reshaped by this hope of what resurrection presents to us. So my invitation to you is to take a look at yourself, your heart, your life, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, to ask what gospel, what story are you has your life tethered to that you're looking at, hoping somehow that will deliver the goods that it promised you. And then to cause you to step back and look at the hope that God gives us through Jesus, one that's based historically on evidence that took place, that Paul says, test it, go talk to the people, they're still alive. Many of them are just kind of hanging around in the region, go talk to them, they can tell you the story. This is what Paul is suggesting. And to walk in this newness of life, and the possibilities of this are absolutely breathtaking. And in closing, I was thinking about this reality, that the super bloom, it's not merely a fact to be believed. I mean, we can hear the news clippings or read the news clippings and just kind of be like, okay, yeah, that's right, this happened. But the fact of the matter is, we, really, we, we want to walk through it. We want to enter into it. We want to be a part of that. This is what the resurrection is all about. It's not just merely a fact to simply put on your intellectual checklist to say that fact, I believe it, tick the box, but it's something that Paul invites us to walk in, to let the power of God begin to resurrect all sorts of areas in our lives that have been given over and maligned by death. That's what I want to invite you into as we respond. So how about we all stand, we're going to finish with a song, and I want to invite you that if you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you're somebody that has wrestled with or tried to think through or process this reality of Jesus. And maybe you, you've got questions, and that's okay. We, we all come from a baseline where we have questions. Questions are fine. God is big enough to handle and manage our questions. But at the end of the day, what I want to invite you into is to trust this God who actually doesn't just like you. He loves you. He stepped into your barrenness, your chaos, took upon himself your chaos. That's the cross, guys. That's Jesus bearing our sin, our shame, our guilt, our judgment, our destruction, our chaos, and then coming out the other end and then inviting us to trust him into that resurrection life that's full of hope. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and just posture our heart to consider what God wants to do in our moment now. God, thank you for your great love. I pray for my friends, my family, my church family here, God. No matter where people are at, no matter what type of place they are in life, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the beauty that is all around us because of what Jesus launched 2,000 years ago. In the hope that we have of a future that will be fully restored one day. And just as we have our heads bowed, and if you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you are somebody that would call yourself a Christian, but you've kind of wandered away, you're far from God, or you feel yourself just a slave, a slave to all of these elements of death around you. Like you feel powerless 
to these things. And death keeps getting the upper hand, keeps getting the victory over you, over and over and over again in these cycles. And you want that broken. I want to pray for you this morning. So whether you're a Christian, whether you're part of that cycle, if that's you this morning, I just want to know who you are. I want to pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. Just raise your hand. I don't want to know who you are. Pray for you. Awesome. Cool. You're good. It's great. Good to see you. Anybody else? Just raise your hand. I just want to pray for you. Cool. I want to pray, and then we will respond. And as we sing, if you raise your hand and you'd like prayer, if you didn't raise your hand and you would like prayer, uh, we'll have some people over out by the cross up here, this little area by the rugs, to just pray for you. And we'll sing, and then we'll dismiss you guys. God, I just thank you for your great love. And I pray for those that raise their hand, that recognize their need, whatever circumstances they may be going through in this life right now that are just tainted, maligned by death. Remind them of the hope that comes through Jesus. Breathe life. Set free. Reshape, resculpt the landscape from one of chaos, death, barrenness to one of a super bloom.